Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. We have a fantastic interview and subject today with our guest, author, and Smithsonian Associate Craig Nelson, who I will introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 724th episode when we spoke with author Scott Shea about John Phillips, Denny Doherty, Michelle Phillips, and Mama Cass Elliott, or as they were collectively known, the Mamas and the Papas, who became standard bearers for California counterculture after their amazing song, California Dreamin'. Scott Shea has written the new book, All the Leaves Are Brown. Two weeks ago, I spoke with psychologist Dr. Jennifer Gutman about her new book, Beyond Happiness, The Six Secrets of Lifetime Satisfaction. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you miss those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. You can Google Not Old Better and get everything you need to know about us. In 1938, when Nazi Germany seized land from Czechoslovakia, the military force of an isolationist United States was smaller than Portugal's. But that same year, President Franklin Roosevelt's order to dramatically expand domestic U.S. airplane production was the first step in the monumental transformation of American enterprise that brought victory in World War II, as well as ended the Great Depression, gave rise to the middle class and its affluence, a consumer society, and triggered an economic, military, and scientific boom that turned America into the undisputed leader of world affairs and all about the two American revolutions. This is Craig Nelson reading from V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. Historians have charted two American revolutions, one establishing the country in 1736, and another ending chattel slavery in 1861. There was, however, a third, an American Revolution begun in 1933, one that extended across the whole of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. The Roosevelt administration turned the United States of America upside down to create a wholly new country that would become both the leader of the West as well as the global force that ensured that there would be no World War III. The arsenal of democracy may have been the secret weapon for winning World War II, but there could have been no arsenal without the managerial expertise and infrastructure achievements of the New Deal. By transforming what Americans thought of themselves and what they could achieve, the Roosevelt Revolution ended the Great Depression, defeated the fascists of Germany, Italy, and Japan, birthed America's middle-class affluence and consumer society, led to jet engines, computers, radar, the military-industrial complex, big science, and nuclear weapons, triggered a global economic boom, and turned the United States military into a worldwide titan with the United States as the undisputed leader of world affairs. New Deal architect and Labor Secretary Francis Perkins summed up this miracle. In retrospect, one is amazed at the enormous scope of the program Roosevelt led, amazed at such a prodigious amount of the war supplies that should have been produced with such speed, accuracy, and high quality, that they should have been delivered with such promptness and precision in the exact places where they were needed, that a civilian army and navy of 12 million should have been raised, trained, outfitted, and millions of more men shipped overseas ready for combat of the most difficult and unknown kind. 
The miracle is that Roosevelt kept his head above the welter of administrative problems and technical adjustments and kept his eye on the objectives of higher importance. The miracle is that he managed to keep the whole machine moving in the direction which made victory possible and laid the foundations for peace. At that time, one of America's most popular magazine colliers announced, we have had our revolution and we like it. That, of course, is our guest today, author, historian, Smithsonian Associate Craig Nelson, reading from his new book, V is for Victory. Craig Nelson shares with us how FDR's skillful leadership turned a nation wary of war into an arsenal of democracy ready to take on the dangers of another world war. Craig Nelson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of Craig Nelson's presentation at Smithsonian Associates is How FDR Challenged the Nation from Isolation to Ally. Please check out our website or Smithsonian Associates website for more details. But we have Craig Nelson today, so please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast author, historian, Smithsonian Associate, Craig Nelson. Craig Nelson, New York Times best-selling author, you're with us today. What a pleasure it is to speak with you. Thanks for the reading that you've done so generously. Congratulations on this wonderful book, V is for Victory Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. It's just really, it's great to talk to you. You are going to be speaking at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. And I wonder if we can just start there, maybe tell us a little bit about what you might say during your presentation and in particular, how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience. We're all on Zoom these days. (laughs) Well, it's a real honor and pleasure to be here, Paul. And um, I really, really appreciate the sort of philosophy of the Smithsonian of how to reach educated, ordinary Americans and, and provide them with inspiration and, uh, and sort of twists along the way that make the experience really uh, special. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm going to do for this talk. I created a slideshow just for the Smithsonian that really uh, shows you the entire incredible story of how a nation as beaten down and hopeless and filled with despair and really at the end of the ropes uh, of our ropes that we were in the 1930s rose to defeat the greatest evil in the history of humankind. And it's really an unbelievable story. And, and this book really shows you all the details of exactly how that happened. So I'm going to be able to do a, a photo version of that with people on Zoom. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And thank you so much for your kind words about the Smithsonian. We, I certainly love the Smithsonian, and um, so many do as well. And it, it's such a treat to be talking to you and have you talking to us, especially about this new book, which is getting rave reviews. I'll just tell you this right out of the, out of the gate, Craig Nelson. Lawrence Lemer, author of Capote's Women, has said, Craig Nelson has written a brilliantly researched and compellingly written story of the American home front at war. The book inspires as it instructs. I really I loved that review. I said I think that says so much about your work. Again, congratulations on this this wonderful book. I think you you really you touched on this in the reading. You, you talk about this revolution that took place. You really in the book, you reveal this era when Detroit was kind of like Silicon Valley today. Ford, kind of like Apple today. Sears and Roebuck, I think many in our audience will remember that name, Sears and Roebuck, kind of the Amazon of the day. Yet FDR really needed to 
actively persuade. His leadership was was so important in persuading a nation to rise up and defeat this great evil. Tell us a little bit about how he did that and how challenging that was and how difficult. Well, one of the incredible things that happened in FDR's uh, presidency is that he rode into office on this giant tidal wave, defeating Hoover so decisively and so uh, countrywide that it was really astonishing. So he was able to put through his 100 days of the New Deal just with like gangbusters. And one congressman said, it's like reading the first chapter of Genesis, the, the New Deal, trying to fix everything that was wrong. So he just had this tie. And then he had the famous bit of hubris takeover. He tried packing the Supreme Court, which did not go over well. And he tried punishing uh, Democrats who hadn't followed his line perfectly in the midterms. And that didn't work out well. Hmm. So he really changed. And how he decided that he would never really get out front of public opinion. That he would constantly be waiting for the public to be ready to do things before he would uh, go forward with them. And he was able to do this because he was a master of the radio. The radio was the internet of that era, and there was no bigger star than Franklin Roosevelt. So he would send out proxies to sort of make speeches, and then he would announce various changes in policy, and he would gauge the reaction through public polling and through what happened with the audience on the radio. And he never uh, actually got in front of anybody, the majority, at any time. He just kept waiting and waiting till they were ready, and then he would move on step by step to first helping England and France and the USSR, and then preparing the United States for war. And the radio was such a powerful tool. It was really directed at what you call those that stayed home. And and you say about that group, that particular population of the United States, you say, that was really our secret weapon. And and that was what won the war, uh, World War II. How How did that lead us to victory? So we had an overwhelming advantage in material supplies. I even have a, a great line that uh, captured Nazi POW is being taken to uh, the prison. And he goes, I know how you won. You just produced all these things and drop them on us. Uh, <laughs> and that was literal, that's literally how it works. So, for example, one story is uh, uh, the president of GM arrives to take the reins of the arsenal of democracy. And he's basically running the American economy. His name is Bill Newton. And he's having terrible problems because the United States in all of its lifetime before World War II had produced 33 tanks. And now they need tens of thousands of tanks. So he calls his old friend who's at Chrysler named KT Keller. And he goes, KT, I need you to make tanks. And KT goes, sure, Bill, I'll be glad to. What is a tank? <laughs> so, no. <laughs> Just exactly what is that? <laughs> What is a tank? They yeah. didn't even know. You didn't even know what a tank was. But he agreed to make it, which I think is very touching. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he creates a factory, and in something like six months, they have this factory up and running. And that one Chrysler factory produces more tanks than all of the Nazi-produced tanks during the whole of the war. One factory, <laughs> and the, the, there is a genius of American production, very similar to the genius we have today with technology, that. Uh, produce this massive um, amount of of tanks and clothes and food and and planes and guns and ships and all these things that need to win a war. And that was the secret that pushed us over into victory. One of the other 
ways in which we became victorious, of course, was uh, through this arsenal of democracy that you, you refer to in the United Kingdom. And Winston Churchill were, were a part of that, not necessarily so much on the home front, but very much a part of it from the perspective of this arsenal of democracy. And I, I wonder if you'd talk for just a second about some of the surprising things that you learned about Winston Churchill, because his role, his reputation during that time changed quite a bit. Well, Winston Churchill is such a fantastic character, and of course, thousands of books have been written about him, and deservedly so. But one thing that really surprised me was that uh, when he became prime minister, the House of Commons and the king were all horrified because he had been uh, head of the Admiralty when the British did not really help with the fall of Scandinavia to the Nazis. And, And again, he had been involved in various other military failures, and they were just sort of flabbergasted that he had been into this position. But boy, oh boy, if you look at what happens next, what? how could we have lived without him, you know? He really holds the British together until the United States can get up and running to help with the war. And uh, two, two of my favorite stories about him. Uh, one, one is that um, he and Roosevelt had this very complicated relationship, you know, we all tell these funny stories about how he was in the bath when Roosevelt came in and he said, I could, I have nothing to hide from the president. And now there's like 4,000 pages about that story about how what <laughs> part of it's true. Anyway, what part of it is it? So we all have those, but actually they didn't agree on many, many things. And the crucial thing they did not agree on for the whole of the war was that Churchill wanted to restore the empire of Queen Victoria. He wanted to get back to having Singapore and Hong Kong and, and all of these British colonies all across the globe. And uh, Roosevelt couldn't stand imperialism. He thought he thought colonies were the reason that the Great Depression had started, were one of the reasons. He thought that no, these empires did nothing to help their colonies develop in any way. They just sucked them dry. He, he literally thought it was an evil. Uh, so they never got on about that, and they fought about that. But my all-time favorite story about Winston Churchill was told by his grandson, Nicky Soames. And when Nicky was four years old, he went into Churchill's office and he said, Grandpapa, is it true that you are the greatest man in the world? And Churchill said, yes, I am. Now bugger off. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We're with Craig Nelson. Craig Nelson is the New York Times bestselling author of Pearl Harbor and the first heroes. Smithsonian associate Craig Nelson has written the wonderful new book, V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. Craig Nelson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates on July 10th. So coming up, but check out our website, check out the Smithsonian Associates website, all of which you can find in our notes today. 
For more details about Craig Nelson and his wonderful new book, V is for Victory. Craig Nelson, I wonder if you can talk for just a moment or two about how your own perspective on Franklin Roosevelt evolved during your research and and your writing process of the book. Well, I always completely admired Franklin Roosevelt. But in this book, I realized that a point that I had made before was absolutely true that he is the greatest politician in American history. And I mean that in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you can see him so brilliantly doing things. And then you can imagine what it was like if you disagreed with him about something, he would just steamroll right over you. <laughs> and one of the associates, well, a source I got, uh, said, uh, was really in love with him. But then at the end, he concluded that going to see Roosevelt in the White House was like going to meet a spider in its den. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the other thing that really touched me was that uh, Roosevelt had this very happy-go-lucky, uh, wonderfully optimistic, let's sit down and have a beer, regular Joe kind of persona. And, and, and everyone loved him for that. You know, He was out in his car and a crowd noticed him. He just started waving frantically to all of them. And this was a major thing about that people loved about him. For example, after he got the first 100 days of the New Deal passed, he took his family sailing up to Campobello, and everyone in America knew that's where he got polio. Hmm. So when they saw him jauntily sailing a boat up to Campobello, this is like a whole new era was dawning for all of the United States. But at the same time, uh, people who worked for him realized that the Roosevelt they knew was a, a fabrication, that it was a persona he wore like a cloak. And they kept trying to find the real Roosevelt, and they never could do it. Fascinating. FDR, of course, is um, an amazing person in, in our history, served four terms. His wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, was also an amazing person she was a diplomat herself, uh, very much an activist, uh, a real real source of support during Franklin Roosevelt's four terms in office. I wonder if we could talk for just a moment about Eleanor. The book, of course, is Vias for Victory. It's Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. But Franklin wouldn't have been Franklin without Eleanor. What were some of the interesting things that you learned about Eleanor as you as you wrote this this wonderful book? Well, I had the perspective on her, as I'm sure many people do, of being this wonderfully uh, progressive, grandmotherly type woman. So, uh, you know, because I only knew her uh, of her when she was quite elderly. And of course, the research completely upended all of that thinking entirely. (laughs) So so the first thing is that, uh, you know, uh, Eleanor, during her, now recently historians have all talked about, did Eleanor, did she not have this girlfriend? And so, and this is what everyone's talking about. Well, when she was alive, the only thing they talked about was, did she or did she not have this boyfriend mm-hmm. who was her um, bodyguard, who was an acrobat named Earl Miller. And one of the things we're going to see in this Smithsonian show is a picture of Earl and Eleanor taken where she is resting her hand on his thigh. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I found out was that Earl Miller had taught her how to shoot a rifle and a pistol. And she ended up not using uh, uh, secret service protection because she had a gun in her purse and she knew how to use it. You write about some of the other incredible women at war. You talk a little bit about Rosie the Riveter and and I maybe maybe tell us one or two of the stories of of some of those those women at war in addition to Eleanor. Well, I found seven of them. 
the most famous and best story I'm saving for the Smithsonian good, good. broadcast. So I can't tell you. It's, good. it's about the, the greatest Rosie of them all. So okay, I can't tell you good. that one. <laughs> I can't tell you some others. Uh, uh, so I found seven Rosie of the Liberty. Uh, one of them, the, the famous Norman Rockwell painting, where it's a, a woman with a rivet material lying at her feet, and she's stamping on a, on a copy of Mein Cup. We were trying to figure out where this picture came from, where, what inspired him to do this, because it's such an unusual picture. And a researcher found it. It's on this, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. One of the saints was the model for Rosie the Riveter done by Norman Rockwell. Hmm. Um, but, uh, I guess my uh, favorite thing is that I had to, I tried a rivet gun to see what it was like. And it's sort of like a machine gun that shoots bolts. <laughs> so it was quite impressive that yeah. women were handling yeah. this thing. Uh, but... But and I guess my my other uh, really good story is that the original Rosie, the one who was the source of the big song uh, Kai Kaiser's uh, hit song Rosie, that made this idea famous, uh, was a woman who became Rosalind P. Walter. She's from Long Island. She did a rivet, but she became very wealthy, and she's a big supporter of PBS. So the next time you're watching American Experience or Nature or a show like that. See if it's brought to you by the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation. That's a Rosie. Fascinating. I will definitely look for that. And yes, I'm glad you're going to save a few stories for our Smithsonian audience. That's what uh, that's what they're there for. The book is wonderful. I want to highly recommend that. Go out and grab a copy of Craig Nelson's new book, V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. One reason I think to grab uh, a copy of the book is is the photos, Craig Delson, because they're 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 amazing. I uh, I imagine that y- you will be showing some of those uh, throughout the the Zoom presentation. I have to tell you, my personal favorite is the one that was drawn by Ted Geisel, who of course is so well known as Doctor Seuss. And I wonder if if you can reveal maybe a bit of that. Maybe if, if you're going to save that for the presentation, maybe pick another one. I, that's my favorite. But if you want to talk about the Ted Geisel picture, because that's so great, or one of the others, your choice. So the Ted Geisel is quite fantastic because you actually see everything we love about Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yeah. But here it's the racist Charles, racist anti-Semitic Charles Lindbergh is the dragon <laughs> instead of Horton hearing a who. And, it's, uh, and so it's, re- it's really shocking to me to found these pictures. But the background story is even better. I don't know. How many of you listeners love Chicago? I really love Chicago. And of course, one of the things to do there, I don't know if it's true anymore, but one of the things to do was to go to Marshall Field's uh, department store, and they have a very famous candy that everyone who visits Chicago must eat. Well, Marshall Field III was uh, wanting to get involved in journalism, and he was the publisher of NY Magazine, which published all those theater guys and cartoons. And he decided he was going to come up with a a um, uh, competitor to the Chicago Tribune. And the guy who ran the Chicago Tribune hated FDR, and he was enraged about this competition coming up. So he arranged to track down and reveal the plans that uh, uh, FDR had put together to defend the United States and reveal them as FDR war plans. And it was this huge scandal at the time, but it happened on December 4th, 1941. So that scandal faded from memory pretty quickly. <laughs> you know, we talked a little bit about the arsenal of democracy and Churchill, and and you, of course, referred to that in, in your reading. I wonder if you just tell us briefly, how, how did the arsenal of democracy work? So uh, 
quite amazingly, in 1938, Britain and France uh, thought that they could stop Hitler from running amok uh, in Europe by giving him a piece of Czechoslovakia and what was called the appeasement. Uh, and of course, uh, we've recently seen how giving Crimea to Russia didn't work there either. And so appeasement never works. And one person who really thought it did not work was Franklin Roosevelt, who had read Mein Kampf in the original German as was outraged that the English translation had taken out all the crazy stuff and really thought Hitler was going to come and get us. So in 1938, three years before Pearl Harbor, he came up with a federal plan to expand warplane production. And it would satisfy multiple problems at once. It would help the American economy. It would reduce unemployment. And it would strengthen the defenses of England and France and the United States. And this warplane production problem was such a hit that it turned into the arson of democracy. And how it works was that Roosevelt brought uh, corporate leaders uh, in turn, the head of GM, Bill Knudsen, and the head of Sears Roebuck, Bill Nelson, uh, Donald, excuse me, Donald Nelson, no relation, and uh, uh, to Washington to oversee the American economy and to balance out the civilian economy because you had to have people working in the United States making tanks and planes and guns to make this work, and the military economy. And they worked it out in a very brilliant way they realized that if they controlled four essential elements, which were carbon steel, stainless steel, copper, and um, uh, aluminum, they could control the production of the entire United States economy. Hmm. And once that secret was built on, they were able to really make it all work out so that we could go into overdrive producing everything the Army and Navy needed to win World War II. They also uh, figured out how to transform the American uh, landscape by giving people money so that they could, uh, without fear, go forward and retooling all their businesses to convert from civilian to war production. Craig Nelson's our guest today. Craig Nelson is the New York Times bestselling author of Rocket Men, as well as Pearl Harbor, many other wonderful books. He's also a Smithsonian associate, will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up on July 20. 10th, we will, of course, put links so that our audience can find out more information. Craig Nelson, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for being so generous. Just one final question for you. We talked a little bit about some of the reflections in the book on our own time that Ford certainly was the apple of of that time. What else did you draw upon in the book that sparked your sense of understanding that this, this book very much has bearing to our own time, to our own days today? Well, I think uh, very clearly, uh, I I actually had to talk at the Pentagon on Friday, Hmm. and we had a fantastic conversation about this. I think one thing that's missing in our political leaders that FDR did was he really elevated the American people. He talked about how all of us want to be good people, and and there's various ways we can be good people. And, And so he was able to not only solve people's specific economic problems, he was able to make them feel good about themselves and give them confidence and give them a mission to go forward in. So that's part one. Part two is the idea that we have given away all manufacturing and we now have this giant swath of the country called the Rust Belt, I think is a shock and a shame and terrible. And I think domestic manufacturing is a key part of national security, as shown in this book. And the last thing is that uh, between Roosevelt and Lindbergh, Americans were at each other's throats. 
they would have political demonstrations that would turn into brawls and the cops would have to show up on horseback and break it up. And so if you look at this story and you see what position America was in when it started and what position they were in when it ended, it really gives you faith and hope that tomorrow will be a good day. So important. Craig Nelson, thank you so much for your time today. Again, thank you for reading. Thank you for this wonderful book. Congratulations on it. The the book, again, V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and Triumph of World War II. Craig Nelson will be at Smithsonian Associates. Coming up, please check out our website and Smithsonian Associates website for more information. The book is just going to be a classic, a history classic. I know that I really want to encourage our audience to check out Craig Nelson at Smithsonian Associates and check out this wonderful book. Craig Nelson, please come back and talk to us. I know our audience is going to be interested in hearing your next work and the work after that and, and all that you're doing to uh, really recount history in a very important way. So thank you, and uh, please join us again. I'm yours anytime, Paul. I, I so admire what you're doing, and I want to do everything I can to support it. Well, thank you, sir. My thanks to author, historian, Smithsonian Associate Craig Nelson, who will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of Craig Nelson's presentation at Smithsonian Associates is How FDR Challenged the Nation from Isolation to Ally. Please check out our website or Smithsonian Associates website for more details. My thanks to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my equally wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.